Christie is going to lead off on uh, Magnus Hirschfeld and Berlin's third sex. Um, thanks, Stephen. Um, yeah, so the initial title of um, this discussion uh, is Magnus Hirschfeld and Berlin's uh, third sex, but it's going to be, uh, I think, by necessity, a little bit uh, broader, uh, broader than that, um, to do with um, the LGBT movement in Berlin uh, before the Second World War. Um, there is some stuff about Magnus Hirschfeld and the third sex as well, um, but particularly it's about how we can learn um, today and particularly um, for uh, the very present struggle uh, that we're having uh, in our own movement uh, around trans rights, uh, what we can learn from uh, the lessons that pre-war, uh, pre-Second pre World War um, Berlin uh, can offer us. Um, so Berlin in the late sort of 19th, early 20th century is the first real example of what we can call a LGBT movement in the in the sort of modern sense. Um, and the movement kind of came about in the uh, mid to late uh, 19th century uh, when the police commissioner of Berlin uh, chose to effectively relax uh, the enforcement of uh, anti-homosexuality laws, uh, given that sort of by the nature of um, the crime as it was, um, and how it's quite obviously to do with the private sphere, um, in order for um, it to be enforced, generally speaking, um, you would either have to be committing the act or in a room with someone committing the act um, in order for it to to kind of hold up. So what he did was um, not out of any sort of um, uh, benign uh, instinct, but more out of uh, wanting to be more efficient with uh, the police's resources in Berlin. What he allowed is um, for monitored sections of Berlin to be allowed uh, to be used uh, for the gatherings of LGBT people. So what you see is kind of cafes, uh, cabaret clubs opening up uh, as we approach the turn of uh, the 20th century. And this led to a sort of burgeoning social scene uh, where LGBT people were able to congregate, socialize, uh, and exchange uh, ideas. Um, and these people were what um, Magnus Hirschfeld, who was a uh, gay Jewish man and a sexologist um, in Berlin at the time, uh, he referred to these people as Berlin's uh, third sex, uh, which was a term he used as a way of characterizing uh, being LGBT in general. Uh, more as a state of being uh, rather than something that is explicitly related uh, to a to a sexual act, which was his his problem with uh, the use of the term homosexuality. Um, I think this is significant for our current mode of thinking. Um, it it played a significant role in the development of our current uh, mode of thinking about uh, sexuality and gender. Uh, because it shifted discussions around LGBT people 
to being one uh, of people and people's identities rather than uh, discussions around uh, sodomy um, and particular acts that were had in the past uh, concerning LGBT rights. Um, so I think in order to understand this period with regards uh, to what we would now understand as trans people, uh, we have to come to terms uh, with the conception uh, of LGBT people in general uh, that was held at the time. Um, this was a view uh, that came from 19th century uh, German eugenic eugenicist thinking around homosexuality and was effectively held uh, by all those um, in Berlin on both sides of the question of uh, gay liberation. It was a view held by um, Magnus Hirschfeld and it was a view held um, by the Nazi party. And this view was that um, sexuality and sexuality as in homosexuality specifically um, and bisexuality, um, as well as diversion in gender expression uh, was an inversion of one's gender. So what leads uh, men to be gay is the idea was it is an inversion of their masculinity uh, and a, a defect in their masculinity that was uh, leading them uh, to be gay. Um, and this importantly uh, places those that we would now think of uh, as gay, lesbian, or bisexual, and those who we would now think of as uh, transgender on a single uh, continuum of homosexuality, um, or as it was known at the time, uh, of being Uranian, which is um, a term that uh, Magnus Hirschfeld used uh, quite a lot. Um, so this presents some obvious problems for attempting to read back uh, into history uh, with the use of the terminology that we have today uh, and strictly to strictly characterize historical figures uh, by modern divisions of identity uh, that simply did not exist at the time. Um, having said this, in the case of Berlin, uh, there were thousands of so-called uh, Uranians uh, who underwent uh, endocrine or hormone treatment at uh, the Institute for Sexology or the Institute for Sexual Wissenschaft uh, that Magnus Hirschfeld uh, set up in uh, 1919 and offered offered this kind of healthcare um, for free. Um, this gives cause, I think, for some examination of in into trans rights as a specific component. Uh, or aspect of the gay rights movement, uh, even if it wasn't a distinct movement or identity in and of itself. I think the scholarship on this is quite limited um, and because of, but largely because of the, the issues kind of spelled out before, uh, but I do think it's it's certainly something um, worth thinking about um, in terms of whether we whether whether indeed we can um, really conceive of there being a specifically um, a spe specific aspect um, 
to the movement that was uh, that was to do with trans people as we might see it today. Um, so there were several strands um, to the gay rights movement in Berlin at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, some of these were political and others um, like Magnus Hirschfeld's own uh, particular strand uh, were more based on scientific inquiry in order to kind of forge a path towards uh, liberation for LGBT people. His motto was um, through science to justice. And he held a conception of science uh, that would, he would, uh, he held a conception that um, science would reveal the true nature of things and that if LGBT people were simply understood as a natural phenomenon, uh, there would be no reason uh, uh, rationally for their uh, persecution. Um, this turned out to be a kind of political boomerang in the sense that it, you know, kind of backfired, um, as is evidenced by the history of the persecution of homosexuals and transgender people uh, during uh, the Nazi regime to refer to a biological or a natural uh, predisposition for certain sexual behaviors uh, was not clearly a safeguard against persecution. Um, on the contrary, it turned out to be an invitation to apply the so-called hereditary health law, which allowed sterilization and castration of homosexual homosexuals and other uh, sexual sexually deviant people. And this is true, even though there were some exceptions that did allow uh, some individuals um, to have sex reassignment surgery, name and legal sex change, even during um, the Nazi period. Um, this certainly holds lessons for our own times, both in terms of uh, trans rights and LGBT rights more widely, uh, particularly in highlighting the shortcomings of the so-called uh, born this way approach to LGBT politics that has been quite dominant um, in more recent years. Um, and what we need is rather than a scientific approach um, that seeks to just kind of rationalize our way out of um, uh, oppression and subjugation of particular groups, uh, we need an approach that's based um, and created on a political basis. Um, so what was the makeup of the political side of the LGBT movement in Berlin at the time? So, yeah, on the one on the one hand, you have um, the um, SDP um, linked to Magnus Hirschfeld's uh, scientific humanitarian committee, um, and through Hirschfeld and his link to um, August uh, Babel. Uh, the leader of the SDP at the time, uh, they became friends as students and Hirschfeld effectively lobbied Babel to raise uh, the issue of uh, the decriminalization of sodomy 
the sodomy law, sodomy act, um, as it was, uh, in the Reichstag. And Babel did this. Uh, he introduced the bill, and this uh, sparked a full debate on the floor of the Reichstag in 1898. Um, and the Scientific Humanitarian Committee also put around this petition uh, around repealing the Sodomy Act. And this was also signed by the likes of uh, Karl Kolsky and Edward Bernstein. So this alongside many people um, in Berlin joining the SDP as, as it was the kind of the first significant uh, mass, mass membership uh, political organization, uh, political organization. And they joined this on the basis of their opposition um, to uh, repressive laws. And uh, so the SDP became a political home uh, for many of those interested in advancing uh, this cause. Uh, though much of the SDP's actual political involvement at the time was uh, parliamentary, uh, rather than in the realm of um, theoretical work around the question uh, or much in the way of um, grassroots kind of activism um, on the issue. And I think it's also worth noting uh, that come uh, the late 1920s and the early 1930s, uh, the SDP alongside the uh, Stalinized uh, KPD made much of their uh, public opposition uh, to the uh, gathering rise of the uh, the Nazi party. Uh, much of their opposition uh, was based around um, dismissing the Nazi party on effectively as soft on homosexuality. Uh, that's because of uh, Ernst from Hitler's uh, effectively Hitler's right-hand right man uh, during the 1920s he was also a homosexual. Um, these charges against Ernst Rom kind of perversely led Hitler to actually defending uh, Ernst his right to lead his life as a homosexual in the Nazi party uh, on the basis of it not conflicting so long as it didn't conflict with his commitment to a uh, national socialism. Um, later on, of course, um, during the night of uh, long knives in 1934, uh, Rom was killed and his homosexuality was uh, effectively the main charge that was held against him. Um, but the approach taken by the SDP in this kind of case of um, backtracking on their earlier support of gay liberation uh, does suggest that uh, without much in the way of sort of a wider political activism or theoretical work being done, um, their advocacy was quite superficial and limited to the, re uh, the realm of parliamentary work. Um, so the other significant political force uh, in terms of gay liberation uh, was, came from uh, anarchists. This was, generally speaking, um, individualist anarchism, um, heavily influenced by the work, uh, the works of uh, Max Stirner, and this uh, this current had many more people uh, involved in it, purporting to be heterosexuals, 
themselves uh, than in the other currents that were um, fighting for gay liberation. The SDP, people active in the SDP outside of the parliamentary level tended to be gay people who joined, um, joined the SDP on the basis that that was the best place for them to be in their mind. Um, there wasn't much activism done outside of, in the sort of wider party. Um, so um, the sort of individual freedom and liberty and the freedom of sexual expression uh, that these that were kind of key tenets of this strain of anarchist anarchism's um, thought uh, kind of fit well with gay liberation as a hot button issue and um, there was quite a lot of public meetings and discussions uh, that were being held uh, by these groups at the time. Um, this current did, however, uh, come into some conflict uh, with some of uh, Hirschfeld's biological determinism, basing it, uh, their approach as they were much more on the significance of um, one's ability to express themselves freely, uh, regardless of whether this was innate or learned behaviour. Um, and this, despite its wider political shortcomings, I think is a more useful tradition uh, to learn from today uh, on the issue of advancing the cause of uh, gay and trans rights. Um, I think it's hugely important to learn from the shortcomings of this movement, uh, particularly in terms of the dominance of seeking scientific answers to questions of human freedom and the stress on homosexuality being biologically determined. I think that was a key sort of undermining factor. And as you kind of see that the way the history went, it was ultimately um, undid it. Uh, and I think today we see a great deal of biological determinism, not of the same kind, but uh, from opponents of trans rights and I think it's important that those on the on the side of trans rights uh, do not move towards a kind of inversion of this biological determinism and we should as um, the anarchists did, anarchist activists did, uh, set our sights on a maximum of human freedom in terms of gender expression and uh, sexuality unconditional and for its own sake.